Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Join us as we journey into the past. Who were the people? What were they like? How did they begin and how did they end? Let's find out on The Fan of History, episode 14. Last time on The Fan of History, the army of Assyria, led by Tukulti Ninurta II, stands at the Babylonian border. In 892 BC, King Zhou usurped his nephew, King Yi, to become king of Zhou China. So, Dan, what happens next? Well, a lot happens with Assyria. Um, the king is, as you said, to Kultininurta II. He will go on yearly campaigns to honor Asher, the god of war, the one god of the Assyrians. He is a bit uh, defensive. He, his main goal is to consolidate his father's conquests. But every time he does so, he goes a little bit further. His main target is uh, Nairi. It's to the north, close to Lake Ban, mm -hmm. in what is today Turkey. Uh, but the Kultinurta is about to invent something great that we'll talk a lot about in this episode. Um, the, their main goal of the Assyrian is still to restore the Middle Assyrian Empire, and we are not there yet. And when we left the Kultinurta, the second is stood at the Babylonian border, but this has a peaceful resolution. For once. <laughs> that happens that often. Right. Ancient times, but Tukulti-Ninurta II and the Babylonian king Nabushuma-Ukin I uh, decides to marry each other's daughters. Um, so there's a double marriage, and, right. uh, an alliance, 
Ancient agreements are between people and not between states, or that is between specific people. This is an agreement between Tukulti Nurta II and Nabushemauk in the first, uh, not between Babylon and Syria. But still, this leads to uh, a long period of peace between Babylon and Syria. Uh, and it will be so long that we will get used to it here on the show, but it is an exception. Wow. So they couldn't make it an official, like, active state? They just had to gentlemen's agreement on this? No, they, they, the concept didn't exist, really. It was, if we make a deal, the deal is between you and me. Um, if one of the parties died, then uh, the deal is off, and it has to be remade. Hmm. So okay. the, the idea of the state as a partner in the deal is uh, doesn't exist pretty much. Wow, okay. Um, but it, this leaves to Kultinerut a time to go north then against the Nairi. And uh, the Nairi are still not united. It's uh, a, l- a lot of tribes in the mountains, but the mountains are difficult for the Assyrians. Mm-hmm. Um, for many reasons, but uh, one of them being that they don't have uh, sufficient equipment. They are used to hang around in the desert and in Mesopotamia <laughs> where it's warm, so as soon as weather turns bad in the mountains, uh, the Assyrians don't like it very much. Hmm. Uh, there are maybe four campaigns, possibly three, in the years 889 to 886, and we don't really know what happens. But these are but three or four of a great many campaigns against the Nairi, and in the 860s we will see what this leads to. Uh, eventually, Nabushumaukin does die, so his son Nabu Atle Adina becomes the king of Babylon. He will rule uh, ba- Babylon for a long time, uh, from 888 BC to 855 BC. And Nabu Atle Adina apparently uh, reconfirms this agreement because the alliance stays in place. And uh, wouldn't was that would that have been the grandson? At that point? Uh, he's the son of Nabushemukin. Right, but I was wondering if he married that other guy's daughter, would yeah. then the. So it would be. So the other ruler would be his grandfather. Well, I think that uh, he's an earlier son. Ah, okay. This is just uh, two years after. Oh. He's <laughs> <laughs> so. this tiny baby taking over the kingdom. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Adina is actually a very good king for uh, Babylon, so he will. Um, um, so Babylon has been in a very dark place since the Bronze Age collapse. And now culture starts to return. We have writings from Babylon. There is also a shift in Babylonian fashion, which doesn't happen very often. <laughs> so we will we'll talk more about Nabu Atli. Nabu Atla. <laughs> Upcoming episodes. All right. Yeah. In 887 BC, the pharaoh Osirkon I dies. He was the second pharaoh of the 22nd dynasty, mm-hmm. and he has been ruling Egypt from 922 BC to 887. And remember, this was a, a happy and prosperous time for Egypt. They were falling behind, but they didn't know it. And now things will go downhill for the 22nd dynasty. Egypt was divided when Shoshenk came to power. And now Egypt will be divided again very soon. Uh, we never found Osorkon's tomb, 
And it is probably super rich. Remember, he made that uh, ridiculously large uh, donation to the temples. Mm -hmm. and, uh, so th this is not like a, a puny Tutankhamun tomb. <laughs> this is <laughs> much larger. And there is no indication that it has been found and robbed, which we have for many other pharaohs. Oh, wow. We don't have. So this, this is one of the great treasures of Egypt yet to be found. Uh, the succession is super unclear. And we actually don't really know how succession worked in, in Egypt, but the hypothesis is that succession went through the royal, uh, uh, to the females. Mm -hmm. You had to marry the daughter of the old pharaoh, and thus you were inclined to marry your sister, <laughs> if you want to take <laughs> or perhaps your father. Right. Uh, Manitho, he is the guy, uh, the, the very late historian then of uh, Greek descent that uh, gives us the dynasties, the numbering of the dynasties. And he has three or more kings in the next years following Osokon's death. Um, so we don't really know what happened there in 888 to 885. But when we come to 885 BC, uh, there is a son of Osokon who is the pharaoh. He is the only pharaoh. And his name is Takelot the first. And Takelot will be uh, the third name of the 22nd dynasty. <laughs> so they will, many of them will be Osorkons, Takelots, or Shoshegs. Ah, okay. And they, the, the Libyan dynasty, the 22nd dynasty, will go on still for 150 years. So we have a lot of these guys coming up, and it will be extremely confusing. So, but right now, <laughs> it's still simple. We have Takelot the first being the one pharaoh of Egypt for the rest of this decade. Good, I like it simple. His names are very long. <laughs> Give me a hundred years and I, I, I don't even know what's going on. <laughs> and I, I doubt actually that anybody does. Uh, yeah. In 886 BC, we have a rebellion in China. It seems that the nobles of China has uh, tired of King Chao and his tyranny. And the sources for these are not very good. So uh, the king's half-brother Sheng disappears, and the many lords restore uh, King Ji. Remember, uh, he was deposed, but his son, who is confusingly named King Ji, <laughs> uh, becomes the king of Su China, of Zhou China. Sorry, uh, we don't know what happened to King Shao, uh, and he, his reign of Zhou China was between 891 and 886 BC. Now order restored in China. Yang King Ji is the king. Is he more of a puppet king, or is he actually end up being a true ruler? This line is extremely well respected, so they they never sort of think of installing anybody else as the king of Zhou China. So the the Zhou royal line will go on for a long time, and I think this. Uh, this guy is a decent king. Okay. We don't know a whole lot about him. Ah. But I tell you who we know more about. The cult in the north of the city. <laughs> and as his, uh, his passion is, he will go to war in 886 BC. Now he is goes on the last of the campaigns against the Nairi. At, uh, and he travels north. And he comes to the source of the Tigris River. And that is in the mountains. 
And there, he, he, that area is uh, controlled by the Bitsamani tribe. And the Bitsamani are conquered and plundered. And they have a ruler called Amebal. A, for some reason. Uh, apparently there are several. Hmm. So Amebal, he is uh, forced to swear an oath to, uh, to Kultinurta II to always remain his loyal vassal. And this is uh, further north than Adad-Nirari II ever went. So Tukulti Nurta has now officially outdone his father. So high on this victory, he also goes up another river, uh, the Greater Saab River, which goes east into the Sagros Mountains in what is today Iran. And there, uh, the mountain tribes are causing trouble. The mountain tribes are still disunified and uh, unorganized. But among them are the Persians and Medes, and they have horses. And the cult in Inurta really needs horses. Mm-hmm. So... He has... Sorry? Well, I was just going to say, why does he need all these horses? Well, he has a new idea for warfare. The cult in Inurta II, or somebody working for him, invents cavalry. Huh. In this decade. Wow. And it might even be from this very campaign in 886 BC. Of course, it's a, a probably stolen idea that these mountain peoples have done something similar. But the hypothesis is that the Assyrians bring the war chariots, as they always the war chariots have been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. But in the Sagros Mountains, it's hard to drive your chariot. So... Um, when you get to a point where you can't drive the chariot, maybe the horses were disconnected from the chariots, and the, then they had to ride the horses. <laughs> and then what if we fight from the horses? Right. So, <laughs> and a sign that this is actually the invention of cavalry is that they, it's extremely weird how they fight from horseback. So they don't have saddles, they don't have stirrups, so... Actually, hitting somebody with a weapon from the horse is uh, very hard. I say, it sounds super dangerous. I've I've been atop my fair share of horses, and I do not want to do anything bareback that would require swinging or hitting. <laughs> People will learn how to use uh, lances and spears from horses without saddles or stirrups, but uh, imagine swinging a sword or an axe. No. <laughs> so, so the way they fight from horses is that you have two horses and two riders and okay. they're a team and one rider has uh, control of both horses huh. <laughs> and the other guy fires a bow okay so let me steer your horse while you fire your bow <laughs> yeah here, can, can you hold these reins for a second? <laughs> I need to shoot this bow a few times. Well, the time, so... I wonder if you, like, oh, there's the enemy, take my reins, or if you just... One guy is an alert with the bow, and the other guy just steers both horses. So there's, there's basically, like, a uh, pilot and a gunner yeah. on this two-horse team. Yeah, but, and the Assyrians have similar ideas in this early army. Uh, with the, their bowmen, so uh, there is a guy uh, with the, there is a two-man foot team as well, 
where one guy is an archer and the other guy carries an enormous shield that can cover both of them. Hmm. That kind of makes sense. This doesn't seem very efficient, but no. apparently <laughs> all the rage because the Assyrians are uh, the best army in the world. <laughs> right. Because I was thinking, if you you are spending all that time and energy with two horses <laughs> just because I guess is that a necessity because if you don't have any sort of way to stabilize yourself you kind of have to have someone do it especially yeah, against tier if everybody else is insisting on using war chariots you are extremely mobile compared to them oh yeah very true <laughs> I've heard many people who know much more about ancient wars than I do talk about how bad war chariots are uh, they are like always bad <laughs> when you hear experts <laughs> they uh, break they mm -hmm. can't go to certain places they just seems very strange that people insisted on using them for almost 2000 years or more than 2000 years they, there were still war chariots uh, that Julius Caesar ran into wow hmm. I guess we have no other better idea yeah, but Tukulti-Nurta, uh, the second, had a better idea. And in 885 BC, it's time to take the new cavalry on tour. So he goes around the borders of his uh, fledgling empire and uh, beats, uh, up, uh, beats up the Aramean tribes. And uh, we have two inscriptions found from this campaign in 885 BC, but uh, there is uh, almost no... A serious opposition. He just wins uh, as soon as he shows up. Um, um, they see these two-man horse teams and they go, No, what's that? Let's give up. <laughs> they can't handle the, the double horse action. It's too much for them. Double horses, what are we going to do? There is also a claim for the very first time that there was hostile action that uh, made the Assyrians go to war this time. The Assyrians never need a reason to go to war. They are not like the Romans who claim that every war is defensive. Right. The Assyrians are proud that they go around robbing people. <laughs> but this time they actually claim that the, some Arameans did something before this war. And that's the first. Hmm. The cult in Nurta also decides to live part-time in Nineveh and part-time in the capital Asher. And uh, the re Nineveh is uh, more strategically located. Asher is sort of close to Babylon and far off from the action. So now when he has an alliance with Babylon, he doesn't need to be near Babylon. So it takes a lot longer to go to war if he is in Asher. And uh, it seems that he might be dissatisfied with the ancient capital. And Tukulti-Nurta is uh, rather old, probably. We never know the age of these ancient uh, the, the Egyptian <laughs> Assyrian kings. Ah. But uh, he has a grown-up son called Ashurnath. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you 
everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Sid Pal, and maybe he's complaining to the sun that uh, the capital is in the wrong place. Uh, hmm. Which is a very new idea then, because the Assyrians are conservative and the capital has been in the same place for a very long time. Right. A thousand years or so. But uh, the Kulti Neruta has already shown that he is ready to invent new things. So would they actually? So is this leading up to actually moving the entire capital? See what's happening. Mm, more to come. <laughs> a big event happens in 884 BC, and this is a bit controversial. And uh, there are almost nothing I have received so much flack for on YouTube like this statement. Right. But in 884 BC, a guy named Omri founds the kingdom of Israel. And there is a major shift in the Old Testament for the year 884 BC because everything that has happened before 884 BC is extremely hard to coordinate with any evidence we have. Mm -hmm. Uh, But now suddenly we have other non-Jewish sources. We have uh, archaeology and everything points to the fact that the kingdom of Israel actually starts this very year. The Assyrians will refer to Israel as the house of Omri for years to come. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is the Meshai Steli in Moab that talks about uh, Omri. Uh, on the black obelisk of Shalman Isar III that we'll talk a lot about, uh, they also mention uh, the house of Omri. And it, it seems that this guy is, is the real thing. It's a historical person. Right. So uh, what? Some researchers don't even consider Omri real, but uh, later Israel kings uh, as the first kings of Israel. Hmm. I was about to ask, why is it so con- controversial? Is it just due to the fact that some... Re- about the researchers not considering him real, or... Is it more? The, the controversial thing is to uh, this uh, is to consider all the kings of Israel before Omri ah. uh, not real, like uh, David and Solomon, mm-hmm. which is the the particular tender um, spot. <laughs> <laughs> right, I gotcha. Yeah, I think we talked about that before, so I won't go into more detail sure. now. But Omri has his capital in Tirsa, and you probably never heard of Tirsa. Mm-mm. 
uh, and uh, Omri realized that this is a poor location for capital. It's too close to Aram Damascus, which is a rising power and the first truly uh, organized state of Arameans. Uh, Omri will uh, move the capital. I mean, the, the reason that uh, Omri is discredited by ancient history is that he is not uh, you. He doesn't believe uh, that he is not of the faith of Yahweh. Later kings will be, and they seem to be sort of embarrassed uh, at the fact that their great kingdom was founded by somebody who wasn't. Because uh, as a Canaanite, uh, or as, as a person in that area, he's of course a polytheist uh, who believes in many gods. Mm-hmm. So uh, I will be, I, I will go further with this claim later when we get to the first uh, Jewish king of Israel, who I actually think is the one responsible for the discrediting of Omri. But right now Omri is the king of Israel, and there is a new kingdom uh, in uh, uh, yeah in Palestine. We don't know about the kingdom of Judah. But it is very likely that Judah does not exist at all as an organized state, and that it comes much later. But if you believe the Old Testament fully, of course, Judah is around. But there is almost zero evidence for that. And Jerusalem is probably uh, around, but a very unimportant place. Uh, Remember that Shoshenk didn't mention it in his great raid of uh, 925 BC. Okay. Uh, what else? Where do you want to go next? So, well, we haven't talked about them in a while, but what's going on with the uh, what's going on with the Olmecs? Yeah, the Olmecs—they still don't have any written language. We don't really know, <laughs> right? But we have this amazing art made of jade, uh, clay, basalt, and greenstone. Mm-hmm. Very naturalistic art, and of course, this is uh, not a great subject for a podcast. So, <laughs> yeah. go to our YouTube channel and check out the episode for the this decade. All right, let's let's uh, talk about beautiful art on the radio. <laughs> it's actually very special in its style and extremely interesting. So, or just Google all Mac art because this is the period where they begin their great artwork or most of the best pieces are from about this period. And it's still quite early in Olmec civilization, but they have they make some interesting pieces. Okay, let's head somewhere else. <laughs> what about uh what about in actual in back in Europe? What's going on in Europe? Europe? Yeah. Yeah. Still in the dark age, but uh, now the Villanovans are in their late phase. Okay. And uh, we will soon be talking about what's going on in Greece, but it's still a little bit early. Um, but there is something interesting going on in Spain, and this is so strange, because we we thought we knew about Phoenician colonies, and when the Great Colonization Period happens in the 8th century BC, it seems that the, the Greeks are like slightly later than the Phoenicians, but that the Phoenicians haven't colonized heavily. But we have found evidence of Phoenician pottery in uh, Plaza de las Monjas in Huelva in Spain. And this is uh, maybe the earliest evidence of Phoenician, uh, Phoenician colony. And it's so early, the, the early 9th century BC, 
it's uh, there seems to be no real motivation for the Phoenicians to go across the entire Mediterranean. You know, <laughs> their base is in Lebanon. Right, that's what I was wondering. It's like, why would they stretch out so thin? But it's very clearly Phoenician. There, there are Phoenician things there. Uh, so many Phoenician things that it seems that there were Phoenicians there as well. Maybe they just sold a big load of stuff to... But how could anyone from Huelva travel to Lebanon? So uh, it's weird, but it seems that there is a colony. Of course, Huelva is a great place to have a colony because Spain is very rich in uh, many precious metals and iron. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it seems that Phoenician colonization started this early, uh, and that's quite amazing. The, the Greeks are not going anywhere except over the Ionian yet. So the Phoenicians are way ahead of them. But the nature of Phoenician colonization is very unintrusive, actually. They tend to build a, a trading post and trade. And that's what they do. They don't change the landscape or form states or... Yeah, it's just build a trading station on an island or on an easily defended site and then trade with people. So they basically come in and make themselves wanted yes. or I mean, and useful. They are probably welcome. Uh, I think they are... Uh, the native peoples have different opinions when the Greeks show up, but I think <laughs> quite good to have nearby. Hmm. And well, this is, of course, the foundation, uh, the, the first... Phoenician presence in Spain is what will later lead to Nova Carthage and the the power base of Hannibal in his great war against Rome. But that's uh, in the uh, third century BC. So. Oh, <laughs> See, I thought that was a ways off, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah, I think that's it for this decade. The the greatest thing being, of course, the invention of cavalry. There are other claims for this invention, but I think the Kultinerta the second claim is quite solid. All right. Well, I guess we'll call this an episode. But next time, are we going to continue with the eight eighties? Uh, yes. All right. Will. So we split it into uh, a two-parter because uh, a big change happens in Assyria. And I thought that this uh, invention of cavalry thing was big enough to be the first episode. Oh, right. Well, tune in. Looks like we're going to see the Neo-Assyrian Empire take things to a new level when Asher Nasser Paul II becomes the chosen king of Asher. Yes. Also, we'll learn why you name him, why you name him the Lord of Massacres. No. Yeah, <laughs> there will probably be an episode named the Lord of Massacres, so we might not learn all about that next okay. time. Uh, Ashur is a different kind of Assyrian king. All right, well, folks, please check us out if you enjoyed the podcast. Uh, we do have a Patreon, patreon.com slash fanofhistory. Also Facebook slash fanofhistory. Twitter, the fan of history. And also we have a website, thefanofhistory.wordpress.com. Okay, so I guess 
that'll be it for today and for no, what? It won't. What? Because it's time for Assyrian or Babylon. Oh no, the hardest game I've ever played. <laughs> Are you ready? I'm as ready as I'm gonna be. Okay, this time the subject is people. People. Okay. You have five names. Of gotcha. Persons, and you have to tell me if they were Assyrian or Babylonian. Oh no. If you get three right, you win. Excellent. Definitely right. You lose. Oh, dang it. Okay. I'll do my best. Hit me. The first person is Shamash Mudamik. Shamash Mudamik. I'm going to say... Babylonian. Babylonian. You're right. Yes. <laughs> One. King in 920 to 900 BC. So we just talked about him. <laughs> Now it gets harder. Uh-oh. Here we go. Second person is Nabu Nassar. Nabu Nassar? Yes. I remember the name. Nabu Nassar. It sounds similar to another name, so you might remember the other name. Okay. Hmm. I am going to say Assyrian. No. Oh. not a king. Dang it. One, one. And Nabonassar will, uh, is a later Babylonian king that will do a lot okay. of stuff. So we'll talk about him later. Uh, okay, the third person is Sennacherib. Sennacherib? Yes. Hmm. Let me think. Sennacherib. Have I heard anything like that before? You probably have. I think so. Then I'm going to go... You could get a hint. Okay, give me give me a hint. There is a famous poem about him. It's a famous poem? Yes. By Lord Byron. Oh, wow. Then I'm going to say Babylonian. No, he's oh, Assyrian. Oh, God. <laughs> the Assyrian came down like a wolf of the fold. Yes. Ah, okay. I'm... About that in 701 BC. 701, okay. One of the great Assyrian kings, actually. Okay. You're one, two now. Uh, it's all, it all comes down. It's pretty, it's coming down to the wire. Yes. And now you'll get a really hard name. Oh, no. Kandalaru. 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 <laughs> yes. Can, can I have that in the form of a song, please? <laughs> it's coming for you. Kandalar. I'm going to say... <sighs> I'm going to go Assyrian again. This was a trick question. In oh, no. In favor, because uh, <laughs> Kandalar is a Babylonian king. Okay. It, it, it is suspected that he is actually another name for the Assyrian king of the time, so I'll give you oh. give your point for Assyrian. <laughs> he, was a, he was a hidden Assyrian. Yes. <laughs> Later, some Assyrian kings will claim Babylonian kingship as well, but when they do, they assume a Babylonian king's name. So okay. <laughs> All right. I might have been Ashurbanipal, but he's recorded as king for Babylon in 648 to 627 B.C. Hmm. And that is a very interesting time. 
course, it's the time when the Assyrian Empire is at its biggest. Huh, okay. That is interesting. Including Babylon. Okay, it all comes down to this final king. The last one. Uh oh. oh. They were all kings, so maybe that's not <laughs> right. too big. Okay, you need to sharpen your skills now. Here is the final guy Ariba Marduk. Ariba Marduk. That, that Marduk sounds familiar. Yes, it should be. It should be familiar. <sighs> Maybe I should go back. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pause and we're going to go back and listen to all the old episodes. Don't do that. Oh, oh dang it. <laughs> but folks, here's what you can do. You can pause and go back and re-listen to all the old episodes. But I am going to go with Assyrian. No! Oh, gosh. Marduk is the main god of the Babylonians. Uh, okay. <laughs> so, he's, a, he's a Babylonian king. I was like, why does Marduk sound so familiar? I know we've talked Marduk. about it. <laughs> it's, it's one of the big problems with the, uh, the fact that the Assyrians respect the Babylonians so much. Right. But then they have this weird monotheism where Asher is all gods. So Marduk sometimes gets becomes more important than Asher, and it makes no sense. But uh, the Assyrians are like, oh, Marduk, that's the god of Babylon. Wow, he's really powerful. <laughs> they start worshipping him instead, and the Assyrian king has to bring them back to the fold. Huh. All right. Well, that is interesting. Well. <sighs> Another loss at Assyrian or Babylonian. Oh, no, I'm terrible at this game. Next time, we'll do women. All right. That ought to give me an edge for some reason. I have no idea why. <laughs> Ancient Mesopotamian babes. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Heck yeah. Everybody tune in. Well, folks, for the fan of history, I am Brennan. I'm Dan. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash fanofhistory. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks, and see you next time. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.